freaking auto! This, this is Brock and Salk. Brock Ewart is my hero. Jay Buter just punched me in the kidney. Powered through the Alaska Airline Studio. On Seattle Sports. Oh, we're going to do you a minute. That really worked that way, Sherm. This is a show that has my name on it. It kind of does, though. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen and Ballard. Now, here are your hosts, Brock Ewart and Mike Salk. Hello! What a great time at the ball game last night. Mariners walk it off. one nothing win. Cal Raleigh, the hero. George Kirby, the star. Bunch of other guys contributing. J.P. Crawford had a couple of big moments. Justin Topa, Paul Seawald. It was nice. It was a really good game. Really fun to be there. And yes, I did say earlier that I am uh, starting to not hate the pitch clock, which is good. It was nice to uh, kind of make that thing keep moving. Anyway, whenever I go to a game, I obviously come away with a few observations and things I notice. So I've got seven of them for you. Uh, I guess one is a question, but seven observations and at least three senses utilized. I promise I've got sight, taste, and smell. I don't know whether I have any audio ones here, but anyway. Number one, Moto Pizza, legit. Oh, yes. (laughs) is really good. Uh, Went up to Section 314 right before the game. I don't know, maybe at like 620, 625, so 10, 15 minutes before the game. No line. I mean, like five, six, seven people in front of me. Took under a minute, minute and a half. Grabbed my pepperoni pizza, went downstairs, and it was delicious. I'm glad you got to experience Really, that. really good, and I heartily recommend it. Excited to get my four pies in July when they Well, when they the ones come. you ordered, you told me they're ones that they don't make right. at the ballpark, so that's, that's right. good. Like, yeah. They, they obviously can't make the full spectrum. No, there's like they, a clam one right, and some other stuff. And yeah. spicy sausage. And that's going to be garlic, ridiculous. banana, ketchup. Can't wait. Really, really good. All right. That was uh, observation one. That was the taste. Uh, observation two. This is a Julio one. So in one of the innings, uh, you know how they throw down before the inning, pitcher warms up and then the catcher throws down to second base to kind of end the warm ups and start the inning. Right? right. And I don't know, maybe it was the seventh or eighth Cal threw down a second base. And for whatever reason, neither Wong nor JP was there. <laughs> I don't know what happened. So he just sort of tossed the ball into center field. Oh, I thought he sailed it. Okay. Maybe he sailed it. I, I mean, you know, it's hard to see Wong out there sometimes, so maybe it just went over his head. <laughs> oh. But um, in any event, Julio wasn't paying attention. He had turned around to throw his ball into the stands, and they're all, like, shouting at him. And finally, he, like, turns around and, like, sees the ball and goes, oh, he runs over to this ball, honestly, like a big, goofy golden retriever, picks up the ball, and is like overjoyed that he has an opportunity to throw another ball into the stands. I don't think I've ever seen an athlete handles a moment like that quite like he did. It just, for whatever reason, completely cracked me up. Just like complete kid in a candy store. Totally. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yep. Like, oh, my God, I get to just throw another ball in the crowd? This is the best. It's what, it's what makes him, like, impossible to dislike. He's just... Julio. He, he, he is. He's just <laughs> unabashedly himself all the time. And I guess it's a good lead into number three, which is that he absolutely more than any athlete I can remember feels and hears the crowd. He really does. And I don't know that I can remember an athlete. Certainly there probably have been some that have in, in baseball that really react and feel the crowd the same way. So uh, let's see at top of the seventh inning, Kirby, you know, kind of doing his thing. There were a couple of loud outs, including this one to end the seventh. Kirby pauses now pitches swing slugged out to center field. Julio racing back out of the warning track. He's got room. He makes a bunny hop and he makes the catch and he flashes to the no fly zone. 
Julio throws the ball to his personal cheering section after he takes one right by the cusp of the wall. He reels it in, and George Kirby, what a capper on what has been a magnificent night against his boyhood team. He has been hanging zeros against the Bombers. Seven scoreless innings against the New York Yankees. Yeah, so great moment for Kirby, and yes, Julio turned and threw it to uh, to to the center field guys, uh, the no-fly zone. And then as he's running off the field, I was on the first baseline kind of just past the dugout. And, you know, everyone behind it's going crazy. Everybody's cheering for Julio. And you could see him look into the crowd, feel that moment, get excited. And I know people and Brock, it's too bad he's not here today because I think he would enjoy that sort of Julio was a connector conversation that we've had before. The way he connects people and, and, and everyone just sort of relates to him. That back and forth he has with the crowd is real. And you don't get that often in baseball. Maybe not never. But you don't get it often in this no sport. Doubt. I remember so, last year. Cool. Very cool. Like early in the season when he was starting center field, he already, before the J Rod squad, yeah. he already had like little inside things with the, the pen people and the center field people. He was already doing like signs to him. Yep. So just fully embracing it. Yeah, that 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 ability to connect with everyone is unique, Fantastic. man. And uh, you, you really can see it over the course of a ball game when you're up close. That was cool. All right, number four observations from the Mariner win last night. I always try to watch the way the players interact with each other because I think, you know, Brock has always taught me that that is important and just sort of seeing some of those relationships. You might remember this. Colton Wong had a line drive out to left field. Ended an inning. Hit it hard. He did. He hit it pretty hard, but it hung up right to the left fielder, picked up the, you know, grabbed it. And afterwards, he's out there waiting for somebody to bring him his glove. And I think it was Eugenio Suarez who brought him his glove. And you could see them talking about what had happened. And Suarez and they both seem to have that like recognition. Now, I'm I'm absolutely kind of projecting, but my sense of the conversation was it was about how this park takes away hits like that. Because that's exactly what we've heard, right? That it's not just the balls that die at the wall. It's also the line drives that hang up. And that because the balls die at the wall and they hang up, the left fielder doesn't have to play as far back. And balls like that don't drop in for a hit the way they would somewhere else. I don't know if that's what happened or not, but it's sure what it felt like. I would also point out that in his next at bat, what did Colton Wong do? He tried to bunt for a base hit. He tried to bunt for a base hit. I don't know if those two things are related. Obviously, I, I'm just, you know, observing from the outside, but it sure seemed to me like uh, throwing up his hand. Like, I don't even know what to do. I like the I idea. I smoked a ball to left field on the line. That should be a hit. It didn't work. You know what? Next time, I'm just going to freaking bunt because whatever. Was it off Peralta? Too? Do you remember who was pitching? Uh, the bunt? Yeah. The bunt was off Peralta, which okay. was a little confusing to me. Well, I thought they would I bring in Caballero against the lefty. Yeah, I just didn't think he was the most athletic pitcher out there, so I thought maybe he'd uh, squeeze I mean, out look, a single. All of those things are possible. He's now up against the lefty. I, I this is a this is me reading into the situation. But it felt to me a little bit like, dude, freaking Marine Layer, stupid ball hangs up, gets caught. You know what? I'm just gonna bunt. Whatever. So that was number four for me. Number five, anybody else surprised that it was Caballero over Haggerty in the tenth at second base? I mean, is Caballero faster than Haggerty? Because if Sam Haggerty's not coming in as a pinch runner in the second base in the 10th for Suarez, I don't know like what he's happened. doing here, right? Yeah. I mean, like, that's supposed to be his thing. And we've seen him drive teams crazy in that exact spot on second base late in games or or in uh, or in extra innings. 
That was a little surprising to me, and I'm kind of curious to know why that would have happened. You do defensive replacement adjustments? I mean, maybe, yes. You'd rather have Caballero at third. But once you're lifting Suarez for a pinch runner, aren't you at that point going for it right there and saying we're trying to win? So if you burn both players, so what? Yeah, that kind of surprised me. I don't, I'm sure there's a good reason for it, and maybe Caballero's faster than Haggerty, but that was uh, was a surprise to me. Number six, another uh, visual one. Aaron Judge is an absolute monster. Yeah. He is gigantic. He is so much bigger when you're at field level than I realized. The first time I've seen him in person. Huge. Seeing him next to Ty France, he's like a foot and a half taller than Ty France is. It's crazy. Absolutely bigger than I even realized, bigger than I expected. He looks like he looks like a power forward. Looks like he's holding a wiffle ball. Back. It's crazy how big he is. Number seven, and I think I actually have nine or eight. Sorry about this. I said seven, but I actually have eight. There is nothing in the world more obnoxious or typical or absolutely emblematic of who the Yankees are and why they're so obnoxious than watching their catchers, and it started with Jorge Posada, and it continues right now to today with whoever the heck is behind the plate, appealing to the corner umpires for a strike three call like it should be granted to them from God. It drives me nuts. (laughs) Nobody does it with more arrogance, with more certainty that they're right and they're going to get the call than Yankees do. It is just typical of their absolute, complete entitlement to just get every call that could possibly exist. It's obnoxious. And then finally, I told you I had one that would be olfactory. Yankees fans smell bad. I'm sorry. It's true. They look like they smell bad. They do smell bad. It comes with the territory. Just a just a smelly like group of people. Cologne bad? No, like never shower kind of bad. <laughs> Bo, just just smelly people. They're Yankees fans. They can't help it. And I don't know what else to tell you. So there you go. That's uh, eight observations. Olfactory taste. And sight as well. We'll give you the things you actually need to know next. Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710. Need to know. 15 minutes past every hour with Brock and Salk. Here's what you need to know. Up first. What a great job and the fun night at the ballpark last night. Great to see the Mariners do what they did. They needed it every time you want to write them off and say they're done. They come through, and they did it again last night in a big way. This time, of course, the catcher walking things off. Now the pitch. Swing, line drive, right field. This should do it. Caballero's coming to third base, and he can crawl home. This is all the way up to the wall, and Cal Raleigh wins it in the 10th inning for the Mariners. One to nothing. The Mariners take down the Yankees tonight in Seattle. Yes, they sure did. Cal gets the glory. We got to throw some credit, though, at the guys on the mound. George Kirby was absolutely dominant last night. Paul Sewald was filthy in his inning. Credit to Scott Service for walking. Aaron Judge, no reason to pitch to him in the ninth. Just let him walk on down to first base and find another way to get the next guy out. And Justin Topa maybe getting out of the toughest spot of the night, one that he didn't even really create because of the ghost runner on second and an error from JP. Scott, pretty happy with his guys. Pitching, pitching, pitching. (laughs) What an outing. You can't throw the ball much better than what George Kirby did tonight. And really, um, outside the little hiccup uh, his last time out uh, against the Pirates, it has been some kind of season so far. And he dialed it up tonight. I think we talked about after his last outing. Uh, he got hit around like he's never been hit around, and the question got thrown out, how would he respond? And I felt very confident he would respond exactly the way he did tonight. So um, tip my hat. That's not easy to do, and we've gotten obviously banged around here the last two nights, and for him to go out there and just 
totally take control of the game. Um, pretty special. I know Mariners fans don't like that phrase, tip the hat, because they feel like it's used to justify poor offense. But last night, Scott tipping his hat to his own pitcher and probably to that random Yankees guy who pitched pretty well last night as well. Anyway, not much offense to speak of. Good to see Julio with a couple more hits. And at the end of the day, they finished the homestand 7-3. and three. I know it didn't feel like that at times, but 7-3, and three, they head off for a gigantic road trip now and do so hopefully with a little momentum. It is important, you know, to, to uh, you don't want to get swept heading out on the road. Um, we certainly hadn't played well the last couple nights or hadn't pitched well. Um, it is important. I think it's really important, you know, to win the last game of the series. I, I talked about it uh, a couple weeks ago. We haven't done a great job of that this year. But I just it, the mood of the team when you travel, when you're moving on to the next series, you have momentum going. I think it's really critical to win the last game of the series so nice win tonight again 7-3 homestand we'll take it we got to continue to build upon this uh, we've got some teams ahead of us in the standings there's no question about it. that's right texas anaheim san diego all on this trip luis castillo will get it started tomorrow night here's the second thing you need to know hey congratulations to ron francis gm of the kraken gets three more years and he certainly deserves it after what he accomplished in his second season here uh look at the move signs burkowski signs bjorkstrand jones schultz found sprong tolvanen drafted Beneers, extended mccann that's a, a pretty strong start for ron francis who's excited about the future it's been a real team effort and and um you know, I'm sitting up here today, and they're saying good things about me, but it's it's a much bigger picture than just me. So I appreciate you being here. I'm excited to be here for a, a few more years, and uh, hopefully hopefully everybody's opinion doesn't change. But uh, <laughs> we're going to stick to the plan and continue building it the right way so we can be a great franchise for, you know, multiple years. I like his, so uh, his honesty there and sort of understanding of the nature of this business. Uh, his boss, Todd Lywicki, also very proud. He's built a franchise here that looks like Ron Francis. It's competitive, it's balanced, it has grit, it has determination. So today we proudly announce this gentleman is with us at least through the 26-27 year. And for me, it is a dream come true. Well, we'll see because they got some big questions ahead of them. How do you go from good to great, right? That's the next step for them. How do you use some of that organizational depth and the cap space to get better? We will talk to Ron Francis, ask him some of those questions and more coming up a few hours from now at 930. Here's the third thing you need to know. Seahawks practice today. Moore and I will go out there and uh, have some observations tomorrow for you. Also, and we'll address this in a lot more detail here in 10 minutes with Christian Capel, but the uh, UW TV schedule came out at least for the first three games. First two were fine. Boise State on ABC, Tulsa on the Pac-12 network. Okay, that makes sense. And then Michigan State exclusively on Peacock. I got to tell you, I finally have Pac-12 Network after years of complaining about not having it through DirecTV, but I don't have Peacock. And I know I'm not alone when it comes to that. It just feels like they get used as this like test case. And uh, I don't think that's a good sign for those who think that they're eventually going to be invited to the Big Ten. Also, uh, speaking of UW, their softball team. Faces Utah in the Women's College World Series in Oklahoma tonight, 6.30 p.m. You can see that on ESPN. And congrats to their right fielder, Madison Husky. Yes, her last name is Husky. She earns a gold glove for her outstanding defensive play this season. Oh, by the way, she's batting three twenty-seven and has 11 home runs. So there you go. That is everything you need to know. Quarter past every hour here on the Brock and Salk Show. Got a, lighting, a lot of texts 
from people agreeing with me, as usual, about the smelliness of Yankees fans. So, yes, that's good. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I did not I did not take it as a body odor thing. I thought you were going to say it was a cologne thing or something other well, than they that. do try to mask their bad smell with more cologne. I would say that's somewhat typical of, of Yankees fans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like axe, axe body spray. Yeah. Kind of cheap, the, that style of it. Just trying to mask whatever sort of sure. natural pheromones come out of you the moment you start cheering for those pinstripes. So. <laughs> Just, just gross. Just disgusting. Betsy asked me about it the other night. She's like, what is it like? Why do you get so angry about this? I was like, because it's like all these kids that grew up here that don't cheer for the home team bothers me the most. Oh, like, I don't care about those about Yankees that. fans. It's the ones from New York that are the problem. The, 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 the bandwagon excuse. hanger on not from New York Yankees fans. I mean, they're lame, but that's fine. I mean, like you get those all over yeah, the country. They're just it. a lame group of they people just go in general. The Lakers and the Cowboys. Right. Too. I mean, like they're just front runners and you know to just discount them in terms of their sports opinions. It's the true New York obnoxious call WFAN Yankee fan who thinks that after a week they've got the greatest team of all time, who thinks that, again, it is like you know written from God that their team gets every break. That's the Yankee fan that's truly the problem and the one that I think probably smells worse than any other. What All right. You, what, what, somebody wants to know what Toronto fans smell like. Toronto fans? Is there such thing? I know that there's <laughs> people that come down here, but do they – I mean, like, bring me a real thing. What does Bigfoot smell like? I don't know. All right. Coming up next, I mentioned Christian Capel. He will uh, bring us a little further inside what I think is a very bad situation for UW's future. I do not think this portends well, but I'm somewhat biased that way. So what does he think? We'll ask him. Coming up next. This is Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Back in mornings from 6 to 10. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. It's always fun when this stuff comes together like it does today. Uh, Decision Maker Day. Another Decision Maker Thursday. Here on Brock and Salk. That means we'll talk to Jerry Depoto coming up an hour from now at 8.30. I know he's not the GM anymore, so I can't say it's GM Day. But Jerry Depoto joins us at 8.30. And then Ron Francis, uh, GM, of course, of the Crack. Just got his new extension. He will join us at 930. And yeah, we'll congratulate him and excited about the extension, but also kind of want to hear what comes next. He's got some big decisions to make and a really big offseason for them as well. Before we get to any of that, though, let me go right now to Christian Capel from On Montlake and SeattleSports.com. Christian, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. First of all, it's good. I love that we have you as sort of part of the team here. This is awesome and a, a great resource for us. So congratulations on uh, on kind of joining the team, and thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, um, you know, you, you, you lose one job, you're never sure what the future looks like, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly pleased with with how it's going so far and, and happy that you guys are a part of that as well. All right. Well, you had uh, some of the story yesterday, right? As the schedule was released, not that you broke the news of the schedule coming out, but some of your commentary on it, Huskies get their first three games. First two, not particularly noteworthy. One's on ABC, which is cool. One's going to be on PAC 12 network. Not a huge surprise with Tulsa. What do we make of the third game of the season? Michigan state being exclusively on Peacock. Yeah, a lot of people won't be happy about that and, and are not happy about that. Um, it is kind of funny with as much talk as there is about any potential new Pac-12 media rights deal, including a pretty significant streaming piece, assuming that that all gets done, that uh, the the first kind of streaming annoyance that UW fans deal with is actually a result of the Big Ten's media rights deal. Um, but this is, this is kind of the reality now. This is the future. Um, fans of 
all kind of different sports have dealt with this. You know, Mariners fans have, have had to turn to Apple at times to, to catch their Friday night game. And, and Peacock has some NFL rights and MLS is, is streaming and Premier League fans watch their team streaming. So it's, um, it's not the, the most ideal thing for fans who are used to being able to turn on the TV. And the biggest challenge is just what channel are they on? Because there's so many channels. Is it Fox? Is it FS1? Mm-hmm. Is it Pac-12 Network? Do I have the right Pac-12 Network? All those sorts of things. So it's for people who don't subscribe to Peacock, it's it's one more thing. It's one more expense. Um, at least this year, you, it's an expense you can you can do one time and, and then get rid of it if you don't want it after that. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's a sign of things to come. I think across all sports, especially in college football, and if you want the Pac-12 to continue existing. I think streaming is going to be a big part of their future, too. Yeah, and I, I think all that makes sense. And and while I don't currently have Peacock, like, it doesn't bother me. And I, I kind of understand all of that. Where I'm a little nervous for UW fans is, you know, this idea that it was the Big Ten's decision to put this game on its streaming service. Now, maybe you'll tell me that that's where they want to put their highest priority games because they want people to sort of have to go get Peacock or whatever. But it strikes me that for a fan base that thinks there's a chance the Big Ten may eventually cave and want UW and Oregon to come join, that this is not necessarily a positive sign for that. Yeah, that's certainly one way to look at it. That crossed my mind. It it might be more that, you know, the season that Michigan State had, um, you know, coming off of, a five and seven record last year. They were not particularly competitive against this very Washington team that is pretty similar to, to what it was last year. So, you know, maybe there's a thought that, hey, everybody thought Washington Michigan State was going to be a marquee matchup in twenty twenty two. It didn't turn out that way in terms of a really competitive game. Um, you know, maybe that's not one that you want to prioritize as far as getting it on linear television. Um, but it, you know, I I think part of that NBC deal, surely, um, with the Big Ten, is that they're they're going to want some really good games for those for those streaming slots. And I mean, I don't know as many viewers as you think you might lose for for Washington, Michigan State, because it's not on TV and people don't want to subscribe to Peacock or whatever the reason. Probably lose more if it's less enticing than that, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think one thing to Washington's advantage is the Week Three schedule across college football isn't like exactly docked with super, you know, huge primetime matchups. It's not, it's, it's a pretty light week in the PAC 12 too. So, um, you know, people who are looking for something to watch middle of the day, two o'clock out here, uh, I think that will kind of be the, the, the most attractive option, assuming that you're willing to, to shell out for the, for the service. Do you think that ultimately the Huskies are headed to the big 10? Yeah, I don't know. I, when you say ultimately, um, I'd be more confident, like leaning toward the yes side of that. If we're projecting out several years and not this next contract cycle, mm-hmm. I wouldn't rule anything out. Um, I think the reality is college football is stratifying around those two super conferences, the SEC and Big Ten, are poised to kind of work with their TV partners to, I think, really do whatever they want, whatever there's appetite for financially going forward. So, you know, does that look like? those 32 teams adding another eight to to be 40 or to be slightly more than that? Or, you know, do we redefine the pool of power five teams around just the schools that wind up in those conferences? I don't know. I think, 
however that ends up looking like, I have a hard time thinking Washington wouldn't be part of it. But, you know, is Washington going to the Big Ten on the same timeline as USC and UCLA? I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of dominoes that would have to fall um, for that to happen. It would, they would have to start with the Pac-12 bringing a TV deal to the presidents that is not amenable to schools like Washington and Oregon. Um, and then probably you'd, you'd need to see some teams break off and defect to the Big 12. And, you know, maybe that's what would trigger the Big 10 coming in with, with an offer. I don't know if it would be, you know, cutting them in with the same distribution as, as everybody else is getting. There'd be a lot of pieces to sort out. But um, I do think, you know, whether whether it is, in 2024 or whether it is, you know, five to seven years down the line after this next PAC 12 deal, assuming that one gets done um, it's, it's hard to see Washington and Oregon and, and several other schools remaining together in a West coast conference long-term just kind of based on the, the, the way that the sport is shifting right now. Hmm. Talking to Christian cable here on Seattle sports. Did, Did I see that Jen Cohen's name has come up at USC? A lot of people are throwing her out as, as a potential candidate. Yeah, I haven't seen anything, you know, sourced or, or actually um, reporting that, hey, they, they've talked to her or want to talk to her. She's high on their list or anything like that. But, yeah, she's absolutely a name that gets thrown out along with, you know, Pat Chun from Washington State. And I think if you're, if you're thinking Pac-12 and West Coast specifically, um, those are the two ADs that I, I think would – would make most sense to be on the radar, but um, I haven't seen anything to suggest that, you know, there's, there's been activity that way. And that would happen. Why? Just because it's a better job. It pays better. Um, in theory, it's also, you know, right now it's, it's a big 10 job. It is about to be, you talk about those two power conferences. Now there's going to be 32 schools. Um, there's 32 athletic director jobs kind of, at the very highest level, if, mm. if you do look at college football that way. So, you know, I could see it maybe being a, a, a different challenge, right? She's spent the last 20 plus years at the university of Washington. She grew up here. Um, you know, folks in, in that position, maybe they, they want to stay for life. They've decided they're all in, or, you know, maybe, maybe you get to a point where you want to try something a little bit different and, and trying to be an AD, at that school, at that institution, in that market, the bright lights of L.A. and everything, yeah. I, I could see there being some appeal there, um, just sort of looking at it objectively. I don't know, though, if, if personally those things appeal to, to Jen Cohen in particular. Hey, how good is this softball story, by the way? This team's good, huh? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. If they had just breezed through their regional against McNeese, you know, not been tested, not had to even go to an elimination game, not fall behind six to nothing going into the, the top of the seventh inning, I, I, it, it would have been totally normal, right? They were the seventh seed hosting. Oh yeah. Washington won another regional. That's kind of what they do. And, but I think that that comeback really it galvanized them further. It, um, I think it rallied the fan base even further. They've already got pretty, pretty great support, especially this time of year. And it did kind of turn this season into another one of those kind of, kind of storybook seasons where, you know, in 2009, they win the national championship. And along the way, they, they got to win a 15-inning game, you know, in the middle of the night in Amherst, Massachusetts. And that's kind of the, the, the point that everybody looks back to is like, you know, when, when everything kind of came together and they felt like they couldn't be beat. And they've had a couple other comebacks in recent years, too, that, 
that are, you know, going to kind of go in the, that same storybook, but yeah, they're, um, you know, they're a veteran team with some, some solid bats, got a great freshman pitcher in, in Ruby Malin. They're fun to watch. Um, it's, uh, going to be interesting to see how they fare in Oklahoma city. Yeah. I was going to say for anybody who tunes in for the first time to see them tonight, who's the one player you got to watch? Yeah. I mean, offensively, certainly it's Bailey Klingler. Um, originally played at Texas A&M and, and transferred and has been um, outstanding for them. You know, first team all American by anybody's measure this year. I believe she's struck out five times this season. Wow. So um, she, she lives on base. I think Tay Oscar uh, really Hernandez struck out five times last night. So yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a season's worth right there for Bailey Klingler. Cool. All right. Well, now I know. Appreciate it. And this is uh, all good information. As I said, really uh, excited to have you on board. You can read Christian uh, at seattlesports.com a couple times a week and on Montlake. Is it on Montlake.com, right? It is. Yeah. Great stuff. Covering the Huskies, doing a great job with it and uh, really happy to have you as part of our team. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right, there you go. There's uh, Christian Capel covering the Huskies for, again, on Montlake and uh, for seattlesports.com. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I I I understand his view there that you know it's 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 not just a, a snub at the Huskies or anything like that. I think there's probably some truth to it. Michigan State is not quite what it was, you know, built up to be a year ago. Okay, fine. Still, kind of can't help but kind of see that narrative fall into place. Of well, the Big Ten has taken USC and UCLA. They didn't want anybody else from the Pac-12. They Michigan canceled their home and home with the Huskies or the backside of it because they didn't want to come back out to Washington again now that they're going to have to be going out to USC or UCLA. And at the end of that, you get put on Peacock, which is a snub right now, by the Big Ten. For those who think, and I was just talking to somebody within the last couple of days, right, who was like, well, I'm sure eventually UW's going to be with the Big Ten. I, was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. I, I played golf with a nice guy named Tom who's a listener. It was nice to talk to Tom, big listener, and uh, had a really good time with him. And that was one of the things he said. I was like, I don't know. I'm not saying you're wrong. And maybe the Big Ten is, is sort of biding its time and, and has a good poker face. That's good business. Nobody certainly knew that the UCLA-USC thing was happening until it did. So it's certainly possible that the behind-the-scenes negotiations are leading to the Huskies eventually joining the Big Ten. But the Pac-12 is floundering. It is a disaster. Mm-hmm. As bad as it's been for the last eight or nine years, it is all they're paying the bill for all of that right now. Nobody wants this TV deal. Nobody wants to spend the kind of money that they need. They are not being viewed in the same fashion as the other major conferences at all. And some of that is the legacy of Larry Scott. Some of it is other issues. But despite having big ticket, big population centers, they're not a big conference. Oh, by the way, Colorado is trying to leave. Colorado is trying to leave. They want to go to the Big 12. I don't know why I just started talking like Colin Cowherd, but for some reason I did. <laughs> Colorado. 
in the big pause. Anyway, that seems to be happening. So put all those things together, and I just see this as another sort of, you know, another bullet point in the evidence that you're creating here to show that the Pac-12's in trouble. And USC and UCLA got a lifeline. Will Washington and Oregon? Maybe. But I, I don't think it looks more likely than not right now. And then if you are one of the other schools, again, especially, you know, Oregon State or, or Washington State, I don't know what's going to happen, man. I know, I know we don't have time for it. I don't know what to tell you. what your and Brock's predictions are, like what the long-term implications of it look like. I think they're, they're, they're potentially disastrous. I think they're potentially disastrous. But you know what? Brock knows this a lot better than I do. And when he's back on Monday, make sure to ask that. Right now, time for a little Blue 88. This is Brock and Salk's Blue 88. Blue 88! We take you to the field as Brock Ewer breaks down three football questions as only he can. Now here's your hosts, Brock Ewer and Mike Saul. Well, I like when we get to do this sometimes without Brock in. We get to use answers given by other people either on the station or in sports media or even just athletes or decision makers. So we'll play sound in favor of uh, Brock this time as he will be back on Monday. Let's start here with our guy, Dave Wyman, the linebacker in the afternoons here with Wyman and Bob. Dave, what's the future of the linebacker position, and are you worried that it's going away a little bit? Linebacker's kind of going by the wayside. (laughs) The (laughs) the position? Yeah. I mean, well, the second level, guys, Uh, Mm. because you're going to see a lot of times with maybe just one. But, you know, like we talked about the the trends in, in the NFL for a while there, the tight end went away. This is probably 15 to 20 years ago. And tight ends have made a huge comeback. So, um, but yeah, it's it's nice to have that kind of versatility, a guy like Julian Love, and hopefully he can take on some some blockers. And, and, and if you only have one guy, a lot of times one linebacker out there, you got Bobby Wagner, you got hopefully Jordan Brooks, and you got Devin Bush. So, you know, at least there's... You know, if they have to go, let's say they move, uh, you know, Jamal Adams up to linebacker, which I don't think would be a ridiculous notion at all. You know, you, it's not like you're light at linebacker. Yeah. So that's Dave Wyman, a linebacker himself, kind of making the point on 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 the, the future of that position, which, you know, look, we've talked to KJ. We've talked to Bob. Like everyone seems to recognize that they're dependent on the people in front of them. And then when you add in some of the abilities and some of the ways the teams are using safeties in the in the passing game, yeah, I do think there's an element right now where it is a position that's being passed by. I agree with Dave. He's right. The game is cyclical, and do things do tend to change over time. And maybe just like the tight end was brought back, maybe one day fullbacks and linebackers will be a big part of the NFL again. But for some reason, I doubt it. The league seems to like the fact that the the passing game is preeminent. I think it's interesting that when you look at the linebackers they have, I mean, Bobby's a good run stuffer, especially at this stage in his career. That's probably going to be the thing he's best at. But Jordan Brooks, why do they draft him? Because he can run. Because he can run with tight ends. And who's the other guy they brought in? Devin Bush. What was the biggest thing we noticed about Devin Bush? He looks like a safety. He's small. So, yeah, I mean, the difference between Devin Bush and Jamal Adams is not huge. It's not as big as it used to be when you were talking about the old school middle linebackers, right? Erlackers. Dick Butkus and Earl Acker and you know, uh, Mike Singletary and Pepper Johnson. 
Ray Lewis, right? I mean, those guys were monsters. And if you were to see Devin Bush and Jamal Adams next to each other, I don't think you'd see that big a difference in terms of their size, right? We saw this a few years ago where it all kind of started. So, yeah, I I think it's a really astute observation from Dave. I don't know how deep the Seahawks are at that position right now, especially without Jordan Brooks. And I do worry that the more you play Jamal Adams up front, the more injury risk you've got for a guy who's gotten hurt every year he's been here. But that does seem to be very much the trend in the NFL. All right, question number two. Uh, Let me go to Chris Sims, uh, who was speaking about the Seahawks, and he uh, really likes their offense. This is on the Unbuttoned podcast. Here he is saying how they could be a top five offense. And the weapons he has, and they did try to beef up the offensive line. They got a couple of guys in the draft and the a rookie free agent after the draft too, right. and, and they Jackson got there's the rookie tackles from last year. Or they're going to be good, so it, it'll be better, right? Yep. So, I mean, I asked you this about the the Lions being the top five offense. I think that the yes. Seattle Seahawks have better skill position position people. It's just a matter of can the can the line, you know, protect Geno yeah. Smith. But right. if they take a step forward there, I mean, not even top five. I mean, with the weapons they have and how they fit together, I mean, I don't know. This could be. This could be one of the best offenses in football. I, I don't disagree. Yeah, it's funny. People are saying that. I mean, and, and for good reason. Can you have the best offense in football with Geno Smith as the quarterback? I don't know. Maybe. Right? Especially if all the other skill positions are as good as they seem to be right now. And you run into some good health. And, and Shane Waldron does another great job. Could you have, if not the best offense, one of the best offenses? Certainly you could have one of the most balanced just say, can they all elevate each other? Yeah, I mean, are you going to lead the league in in passing yards? Probably not. Probably not. Let's let's dispel that and, and sort of end that conversation right away. I don't think Pete has any interest in that. Could you be the most balanced and arguably the best offense in the game? Yeah. It's interesting that people are really doubting the offensive line. I feel like that group has a chance to be really good. Now, depends how many rookies you have to start again and how some of those guys react, but... I guess maybe I'm crazy, but I got really big, high hopes for their two tackles. I thought what they did last year was very promising, and I'm expecting even better this year from Charles Cross and Abe Lucas. So it's not unreasonable to expect, right? Well, quite frankly, I've heard I, I, a ton of doubters of it. I, I, I expected more this year. Yeah, I mean, let's go. I, like this should be a really good offensive line. I'm, I'm kind of expecting them to be. So, yeah, if those things come together. Huh? Just have to get center figured out. Yeah, one of those guys would be fine, I think. <laughs> but they got Evan Brown. He's a center, right? So, you know, put him out there. Let's Seems go. Seems like they've Rock lots roll. of guys in there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, is he going to be worse than Austin Blythe? <laughs> He's bigger anyway. They got some competition. I, all right. The interior of the offensive line, we'll find out. But I'm expecting some pretty big things from their uh, from their tackles. Question number three. Who is going to be the starter in San Francisco? They've got three quarterbacks, which sort of means you have none. Purdy, Darnold, or Lance. John Lynch, uh, he sure seems to like the guy who started for them last year. You know, there are certain markers that you hit. He was 12 weeks out, and that was meant it was time to throw. He did did so and responded really well. Uh, he's just had one session thus far. But, um, you know, we're incredibly encouraged by that. And Brock's a worker. If you give him a task, he's going to... He's going to do everything in his power, you know, so these are just timelines and timelines are just that they're guidelines. But, you know, he's he when I say tracking, well, it's just he's hitting all his markers and it doesn't surprise us because he's putting in the work and 
as for best case scenario. We're just going to kind of take it as it comes. But I mean, the the hope is he's ready for training camp. The hope is he's ready for the regular season. As a Seahawks fan, who do you want to start in San Francisco? Trey Lance. Same. Right. Easy one. Although I will say, I kind of want them to have to just get rid of Trey Lance. Like I think that would be funny for him. Not like it's just so embarrassing. Like, oh my gosh, he couldn't beat just, out Sam Darnold and Brock Purdy. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Brock Purdy's going to end up the starter there. I think he's going to, I mean, we'll wait and see what the arm is well, like when he's done with he all is, this. Just whether, you mean week one? Yeah, I guess I, I don't know about, yeah, whether he'll be ready week one or not. But, I mean, I still think he's the starter over Trey Lance, oh, which yeah. is just Proves crazy. Yeah. Just amazing. All right, there you go. That's uh Today's version of Blue 88. Brock will be back on uh, Monday and looking forward to having him back after his little vacation. Should be a lot of fun. All right. Uh, Let's see here. We got a minute or so. I got three TV stories, three stories all related to television in addition to the UW deal. Right. So we already talked through that and the Pac-12 network and and. You know, uh, Peacock and this and that. Thank you to everybody with all of the great advice on how I could get Peacock. I know how to get Peacock. I can just pay for it. Like, I'm aware of how to do it. I've not needed it at any point in my life yet. There's nothing I watch on Peacock, so I don't have it. It would be a waste of money for me right now. Am I going to get it to watch UW play Michigan State? (laughs) Probably not. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now. Probably not worth it to me. So I'll ask Brock what happened in that game, and we'll just kind of go from there. How's that? Coming up next, three television (laughs) stories, all of which may impact your life. It's next. Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710, seattlesports.com.